Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. I'm the most scientific, the most artistic, the most creative. I'm the greatest scientific fighter of all time. Welcome to the history of the heavyweight championship, a podcast series from Yahoo with me, Steve Bunce. And odds are, I don't get knocked out. In this continuing series, I will look at one year in the sports history. The main fighters, their great nights, their failures, and the dramatic and crazy changes in the sport that took place during the 70s. The white uppercut did the job. I don't think he's going to make it, friend. This is the history of the heavyweight championship. Every one of the main fighters. It is the decade of champions. It was 1976. Muhammad Ali was heavyweight champion of the world. The year before, Ali had defended the title four times, taken the championship back to America after nearly three years on the road and finished the year in Manila after the greatest fight in history. His fame had never been more impressive. Presidents, despots, kings, queens and dishwashers all queued for his blessing. Ali was 33 when 1976 started. He had fought 51 times and had been in 16 world title fights in 12 years. Some of the fights were the most famous and infamous in boxing and sporting history. There had been murmurs of discontent. People were talking about him quitting. Men and women in the Ali business and onlookers had the same opinion. The end was surely getting closer. Ali would have to soon leave the sport he owned. Well, that was the thinking. He did need an easier fight. That was for sure. So, how about a Belgian? A man called Jean-Pierre Koopman. He carved religious statues as a restorer of medieval churches in Belgium. The most eclectic job any challenger for the world heavyweight title has ever held. Jean-Pierre had lost three of his 27 fights. One of the men to beat him was the wonderfully named Rudy Lubbers, the Dutchman who had met Ali in 1973. Perhaps his most notable win was over Terry Daniels, the student stopped in 1972 by Joe Frazier in another world title fight that made no sense. Ali wanted and asked for an easier touch and he got it. Koopman was quickly given a nickname aimed at generating a bit of pride and a few lines in the papers. He was dubbed the Lion of Flanders. He was three inches shorter 20 pounds lighter and could not stop thanking and trying to kiss Ali on the cheek. Also, Koopman did not speak or understand English and that meant Ali had no way of getting inside his head, no way to torture or torment. How can I get mad at this man? Ali asked at one conference. The fight took place in February in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Ali had come down with a cold. That was not hype, it was real. The Lion of Flanders had to spar and prepare behind closed doors because he was so unimpressive and word of the mismatch was undermining the ticket sales. A local witch was hired. Not a bad way to get some coverage. She declared that Koopman 
would walk to the ring and fight with an obscure and long since departed Puerto Rican general and the general's army right behind him. On the night, over 10,000 paid to watch in the Coliseum and another 11,500 paid to watch on closed-circuit television at a venue next door. Koopman had a go, as they say, moving forward, hands high, looking to land. Ali danced, moved, used his jab, avoided hurting his hands too much. At the end of the first round, Ali leaned over the ropes and told the TV teams at ringside, you guys are in trouble. There ain't any way you're getting all your commercials in. Koopman was meant to have drunk champagne between rounds and had a decent slug in the dressing room before the fight. Ali dropped Koopman in round five, a final right uppercut sending the Belgian to his knees. He never beat the count and Ali went over as he regained his feet. The fight was waved off with just 14 seconds left of the fifth round. The man is hard, he took some good punches, said Ali at the end. The cold from the week before the fight making him sound breathless, a bit weary, like he had just completed 15 hard rounds and not five easy rounds. Angelo Dundee in Ali's corner was just happy the fight was over. Muhammad actually slapped that guy into submission. His hands were so sore he couldn't hit him hard. For the next defence, Ali weighed in heavier than he had ever weighed before. The opponent that night in Landover, Maryland in April was Jimmy Young. Now, Young had been slipping and sliding under the Ali radar for a long time. They did meet before the fight. My name is Jimmy Young and I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I want to thank everybody of the Capitol Center for inviting me down here. And I want to thank promoter Don King. And I want to thank the, the Tramp for giving me the chance to take his crown. And uh, it'll be a good fight. And I predict a victory on April the 3rd for next month. No man on this earth will whoop me this year. It's impossible. Man, you're crazy. I'm so fast, I hit you before God get the news. <laughs> or I hit you so hard at the Jayo Kim folks in Africa. Oh, yeah. Aren't you people tired of that? That's, no, that's, they're not uh, tired. As long as I got that's, new heads. As long as I got new heads to beat on, they're gonna listen. <laughs> I tell you what, listen to me. And your head is new. <laughs> on that night, Young was 27, had lost four times in 23 fights and had mixed with good fighters. He had a win against Ron Lyle and a draw and a loss against Ernie Shavers. He had also travelled to London and stopped Richard Dunn at a private sporting club in Mayfair in 1974. This was my guy's worst fight, claimed Dundee. It was not a great spectacle, but it was skillful and Young was able to counter Ali at times. Young found ways to get out of the way and picked his own punches cleverly. He was smart. Young was a steady, technical fighter with a great chin. Dundee again. That's praise, by the way. There were boos at the final decision after 15 rounds. All three judges went for Ali. I don't know what fight the judges were watching. I'd like him to give me a rematch, said Young. There was no chance of a rematch. Ed Schuyler, a ringside traveller from 1960 to 2002, as the boxing writer for the Associated Press, scored it in favour of Young. He was not alone, but Ali did admit that he had created the problem. I underestimated him. He was dismissed by everybody. I got it wrong, and I ate too much pie. Just 22 days later, Ali was back in the ring defending his heavyweight championship. This time it was Munich. 
And this fight had some intentional and unintentional comedy attached to it. It was another bizarre fight in the life and career of Ali. The plan by the German promoters was for a man called Bernd August to fight Ali. August first had to beat Richard Dunn, a scaffolder from Yorkshire, in their vacant European heavyweight title fight at the Royal Albert Hall in early April. Dunn knocked out August. Ouch. The original Munich plan was ruined. However, the German promoters should have walked away, but they went with Dunn. An odd move, to say the least. Dunn was a former soldier and was led to the ring by members of the 1st Paratroop Regiment. That's strange. And Ali bought 2,000 tickets for American soldiers based at camps in Germany. It cost Ali $100,000, and Mickey Duff, the British promoter and manager, always claimed that Ali was making an astonishing $3.3 million for the fight. I'm just going to help Richard make his final drop, Ali promised. Dunn, you see, had been a paratrooper. After Dunn landed in Munich, it was revealed that he was getting help from a man called Romark. Now, this Romark character was a glorious chancer, known to tabloids and television for his stunts, or rather, his half-stunts. He claimed he could drive blindfolded across London. He crashed straight away. He attempted to hypnotise Dunn. Dunn played along, hearing how he now had fists of iron. It was hard to invent. He was a donut, that's what I call him, said Dunn. Romark also tried his magic on Ali when he saw the champion at the hotel. He told Ali that he was doomed after fixing him with the evil eye. Ali fell on the floor laughing. Who is this nutter? Dundee demanded. Ali had dropped ten pounds since the young fight, which was barely three weeks earlier. It was a sign of intent. He also arrived in Munich with a whopping 54 in his entourage. It was out of control, and Gene Kilroy, Ali's long-serving facilitator, called a meeting at the luxurious Bayerischer Hof to try and sort out the abuse. It was, by the way, abuse, with people calling America non-stop and eating steaks like there was a cow plague coming. Ali tried to get angry, tried to moan, but ended up smiling. Kilroy just shook his head. He could never say no. Done as expected, tried to take the fight to Ali, catching the champion and making him dance. And then, in round four, Ali started to set his feet and connect. Dunn was sent tumbling to the canvas three times in the fourth and twice more in the next round. It was called off after 2.05 of the fifth. It was the last stoppage win of Ali's career, the last time he would score a knockdown. That is a sad fact. He would fight seven more times before walking away in 1981. Dunn can be proud of his performance. He hit me with some good shots, Ali on Dunn. He always said nice things about the men he knocked out. I don't think I let anyone down. He's the greatest and I got to rock him. That'll do for me, Dunn on Ali. The last word from Munich must go to Romark. He had given Dunn fists of iron. It was not enough. After the fight in the dressing room, as Dunn had a beer or two, Romark arrived in tears. Richard, I let you down. I'm sorry. I made your fist turn into iron, but I forgot about your chin. Glorious stuff. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. 
Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There was one more World Championship fight plan for 1976. A third and final meeting with Kenny Norton. They stood at one each. Their final fight was set for Yankee Stadium in New York in September. However, Ali agreed a madcap fight against a martial arts wrestler called Antonio Inoki in June in Tokyo. It was not the comedy fight that many believe. It was crazy, just not very funny. Ali had been promised $6 million, but probably ended up with about $2.5 million for the Inoki Carnival. I can't let boxing down. I can't let my fans down. I can't lose to this old fat-bellied wrestler. I'll destroy Anoki. The moment I go upside his head, it's over. The original plan was for a glorious fix, a wrestling match, in other words. Anoki had agreed to cut himself with a razor, make it look hellish, and then he was to take Ali down illegally and get disqualified. Well, that's one version of the chaos. On fight night, the circus was ready. However, there would not be a fixed fight. It was going to be real. It was ridiculous. Inoki crawled like an injured crab all over the ring, kicking out at Ali. Enough kicks did get through, especially to Ali's left leg. Ali never threw enough punches, and the pair did get caught up in a tangle. Ali also jumped up on the corner post, raising his feet and legs to avoid Inoki's kicks. It was oddly vicious. Inoki had on hefty boots, and one had a busted eyelet, and that cut Ali's leg. This was not a joke fight. At the end of 15 repetitive rounds, the decision was given as a draw. Ali was in a bad way. His legs were in a state. He had ruptured blood vessels, swollen legs, and needed serious hospital treatment. Meanwhile, the Norton fight was close. The Inoki fight had been a mistake. The Norton fight was Muhammad Ali's 55th fight. It was his 20th world title fight. He was 35 years of age. Norton was never easy for Ali. Mark Cram wrote a sober warning in Sports Illustrated of the dislike that still existed for Ali nearly 10 years after his refusal to join the American Armed Services. 
The Ali haters who breathe heavily whenever he is faced by anyone who, anatomically, is in one huge, beautiful piece. Nicely put, Mr. Cram. Kenny Norton, Hollywood pin-up, fighter and beast of a man, was certainly in one huge, beautiful piece. Yankee Stadium was set for 30,000, but only 19,000 attended. There was a police strike on the night and a lot of trouble with muggings and pickpockets having a lovely time. Bob Arum, the promoter, blamed the unruly mob for the low numbers. It was certainly ugly that night in New York. Kenny is in the best shape of his career, said Bill Slater, Norton's trainer. Norton never once sat down or took a drink during the fight. Norton broke Ali's rhythm again, using his jab to build up points. Slayton again. Ali doesn't like a jab. Never has. He's too worried about his face. Kenny will jab and jab. Kenny did jab and jab and was in front after about eight rounds. Then Ali came back. Then Norton won another round or two. It was a hard, hard fight. The third man was Arthur McCanty, the referee in the fight of the century back in 1971, and he didn't like what he was watching from up close. Ali was not the same fighter. His timing was off. He tired more easily, but he was still the best boxer I have ever seen at coming up instinctively with what was necessary to win. At the end of the 14th round, the fight was even, poised in just the exact same way their previous two fights had been. It was simple. Win the last round and you win the fight. The corners were a contrast. The fight was won and lost in the final minute between rounds 14 and 15. Slayton told Norton not to blow it, not to take a risk. In Ali's corner, Angelo Dundee was at his stirring, brilliant best and sent Ali out telling him that he had to win the round to win the fight. Ali did win the round and took the decision and kept his world championship belt. Norton was furious once more at the decision, but did tell me one night in Sheffield, about 20 years later, I wish I could fight that last round again. It was a win, but a win at a cost. Ali's personal doctor, Ferdy Pacheco, wanted Ali to quit. I recommended that Ali retire. I'm worried about liver and kidney damage with all the body blows he takes, but the great man will not listen. Nobody was really listening. Ali made $6 million for the Norton fight. That type of cash can cause a lot of deafness. Mark Cram sat down after the fight to write in Sports Illustrated with a heavy, heavy heart. There is no question now that Ali is through as a fighter. The hard work, the life and death of Manila, the endless parade of women provided by the fools close to him have cut him down. Ali would take eight months off before his next defence and would insist on an easy night. George Foreman ended his exile in 1976, finally clearing his head after the loss to Ali in 1974's Rumble in the Jungle. His first was against Ron Lyle in a short, brutal, memorable slugfest. Lyle had lost to Ali and had stopped Ernie Shavers in the two fights before meeting Foreman. That is an exceptional hat-trick of fights the type of short series that exemplifies the 70s and the heavyweight division. The Lyle and Foreman fight would be voted Ring Magazine's Fight of the Year for 1976. It took place at the Sports Pavilion behind Caesars Palace in Las Vegas in January. The actual venue is gone now, replaced by a topless swimming pool with a cover charge of 50 bucks. I'm not kidding. 
I knew going in that I would either get hurt or do the hurting, Lyle said. He did both as it happens. Lyle hurts Foreman badly in round one. Foreman comes back in the second. The fourth is incredible, unbelievable. First Lyle sends Foreman down heavily. It looks over. Foreman gets up, drops his hands and just starts swinging. It is his last stand, his farewell. Then Lyle is over and he looks finished. And then seconds before the bell, Foreman goes down again, this time head first. The bell sounds. He gets up somehow. He can just about walk. Ron Lyle, the fearless Lyle, finally falls face first after 40 punches. 40 punches in the fifth round. He tries to beat the count, rolls onto his back at 10, and the fight is over. Foreman has won. The exile is finished. I've been working hard and and I'm ready and uh, I assure you that it's going to be a good fight. I can't promise you how far it's going to go, but I promise you one thing. Ain't going to be no getting up and getting back down. That's for sure. It's going to be a fight and I feel good about it. I've been working real hard for this particular fight and uh, me and George got a lot of things you got to think about when we get out there. And, uh, I don't, I'm saying one thing, I don't want George to concentrate on one hand because it would be three of them coming at him. In June, Foreman stopped Joe Frazier again. It was billed as the Battle of the Gladiators. Frazier shaved his head in the dressing room that night. The Kojak look, he said. A surprisingly small crowd of just 10,000 came out for the fight in Long Island, New York. Frazier's cataracts had caught up with him. He was fighting with contact lenses. Foreman knocked one of them out in the fifth round. Frazier was in trouble. He was dropped twice, hurt, staggering and cut. Eddie Futch, so long the man in his corner, had seen enough. He climbed up to stop it, but the ref got in first. It's over, Eddie, the referee Howard Valens said. That's good, Harold, Futch replied. Foreman would have four more fights before walking away. Never get his early rematch. But in 1987, he would return and eventually win a world heavyweight title in 1994. It was his 77th fight. Frazier would take over five years out, return to the ring for a draw in 1981 and retire to his Philadelphia gym. Lyle lost to Jimmy Young on points at the end of the year and would fight Joe Bugner in March of 1977. Bugner knocked out Richard Dunn in one round just a few months after Dunn had lost to Ali. Bugner was still fighting 20 years later. Larry Holmes won four. He beat the fearsome Roy Williams, perhaps the hardest of all the fringe contenders in the 70s. Williams had once demanded a 10-round gym fight with Ali to settle an argument over some cash. It is, according to legend, one of Ali's toughest ever fights. Holmes was ready. At the Montreal Olympics, the Cuban heavyweight Teofilio Stevenson knocked out four men to win his second gold medal. One of them was a young American called John Tate. Stevenson was still refusing offers of millions of dollars to fight as a professional. At light heavyweight, Leon Spinks won the gold medal. 
His brother Michael won at middleweight. Leon would make his professional debut in January of 1977. But the year belonged, like so many, to Muhammad Ali, the fighter his people called the Great Man. But the serious signs were there, signs that his reign must surely end, signs that his health was under threat. The problem was, who was left to beat him and who was brave enough to stop him fighting? Enjoying this tour through the best of boxing history, you can find more transcripts, archive videos, historical images in the boxing section of the Yahoo UK sports site. That's uk.sports.yahoo.com slash boxing. The history of the heavyweight championship is written and recorded by me, Steve Bunce, produced by Yahoo UK, with editing and sound design by Lolita Laguna. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.